The Insulone Podcast is brought to you by Cybionics, an emerging CGM brand that focuses on simplifying how individuals aged 18 and above monitor and control their blood sugar levels. Upon becoming available on the market, the Cybionics GS1 CGM has helped users worldwide navigate the complexities of diabetes management with more confidence and peace of mind. Thanks to Cybionics, now more people are able to view and share their real-time glucose data, receive customizable glucose alarms, and generate full AGP reports, all directly from an intuitive Cybionics app, empowering them with the necessary information to make better decisions about their health. Cybionics combines data accuracy and comfort of wear, which is important to us all, with a feature-rich app. The 14-day scanning-free and calibration-free Cybionics GS1 CGM aims to deliver reliable, seamless diabetes management experiences. For more, check out CybionicsCGM.com. This is the Insulone Podcast, where I, own Costello, try to redefine diabetes. In this week's episode... A, a little innocent six-year-old, you know, my blonde blue-eyed boy. And he just took it in his stride. From day one, he were injecting, and that were brilliant. But how could I be so upset when he were handling it so well? But before we get into that, everything you hear on the Insulon podcast is from my own personal experience. And if you have any worries or issues regarding your diabetes, please contact a medical professional. Now, let's get stuck into this episode. Hello, hello. I hope you're well. Thank you for joining me for another episode of the podcast. Wherever you are around the world, whatever you're doing, I hope everything's good. I hope your blood sugars are behaving as we all like them to do. And I hope you're having a good day so far. The next guest I have today is Joe Fox, who is from the UK. She is the parent of a type 1 diabetic whose name is Oliver. He was diagnosed at the age of six and is now 14. So the only guest that I've had on who has been a parent of a diabetic is actually my own dad. So it was really good to have a conversation with Joe and hear about her experiences and her insight into what it's like to live life as a parent of a type 1 diabetic. So Joe, as I said, is from the UK. She is part of the Penzi Trust, which is basically a charity that aims to provide access to educational scholarships and affordable insulin for diabetics in India. And she shares some of the success stories to date through the podcast, which are really nice to hear, despite it being quite eye-opening for me, to be honest, to hear some of the stories and the conditions that people have to deal with along with type 1 diabetes in India. She is also the author of a book, which is called Type 1 Awesome, which is aimed to reassure other parents and to celebrate the achievements of inspiring people who also live with type 1 diabetes around the world. So enjoy this conversation. You're going to get a lot from Joe. She does a lot for the community. So enjoy. So Joe, I obviously know that Oliver, your son, was diagnosed at the age of six. Yeah. And from my own perspective, I obviously have a good idea of what was going through my head as mm -hmm. a diabetic when I was diagnosed 
and I've had this conversation with my own parents a number of times about kind of yeah. what were they thinking, what, were, what was going through their mind. But what was going through your head yeah. when your six-year-old was diagnosed? I think at first it was nothing. It was just such a big bombshell. Yeah, my head was just exploding and obviously I was worried and anxious for his future. I remember even in the hospital, um, the day would, it was tea time when he got diagnosed. And even that evening... You know, and it was bloods weren't coming down, and the nurses kept coming to give him injections. And I said to one of the nurses, oh, "I just had that injection." Another nurse came an hour ago, and she just looked at me and she went, "This is how life is for you now, love." And the reality, I don't think, did sink in properly for a while. But that I was just like, "My God, do you really need that many injections?" But what I came to learn was well, the injections are actually the easy bit. It's everything else that comes with it, the anxiety and, you know, and the worry and the planning and everything else is actually the hard bit and, and the whole, seeing the whole picture, the gruelling sort of relentlessness of it. So I think the first three months I was just in a total shock um, that even something called diabetes can be so serious because I wasn't educated. I did know the a type you could just get. Um, and that young people could get, but you never think it's going to happen to you. Um, but yeah, learning exactly what it was and how serious it is and what it involved for a little innocent six-year-old, you know, my blonde blue-eyed boy. And he just took it in his stride. From day one, he were injecting, and that were brilliant. But how could I be so upset when he were handling it so well? But yeah, just absolutely devastating. And the anxiety is the, the worst part, even nearly eight years on for both of us, for him now as well. The anxiety that, that he's got around it is the worst part for him. And is that the anxiety you, you both feel around, I suppose, that constant pressure of always having to keep yeah. your bloods within that range? Yeah. For example, now he's 14, so I can leave him for afternoon. He's been off school this week and I can go to work and know that he's okay. but there's always that worry because he does eat and eat and eat and eat and he doesn't do his blood. You know, he's not got the best control at the moment, although it is improving. But I can do his blood and he's done insulin when I leave the house, but if we're not back for eight hours, you know, that eight hours, it could actually go downhill, especially because he's got quite poor control. His A1C is 105 at the moment. It was 130. Um, only a month ago so he is improving but if in that eight hours anything could happen when his bloods are already so high when I leave the house that's the anxiety for me a constant worry and, and for him as well he's scared of hypo which is partly why he's always so high and he just wants to be quote normal 14 year old and not have to do this because his friends don't have to do it he has met other diabetic children, um, one in particular he got very good friends with when he was younger, but you know, they're at different years at school now and you grow apart a little bit maybe, they've got different interests now. So none of his friends have to do this, so why should he? And I totally understand where he's coming from, it's a tough age. So he's got that anxiety around, will I hype or no I won't, because I'll stay really high, and by high I mean, it's not unusual that his blood's in 30s and too high for me to read. 
uh, is anxious, we're going on at him all the time. If we remind him, it can be like walking on eggshells. It's something that's always there, is diabetes, and it's like walking on eggshells that could crack at any time. Uh, like I say, things are starting to improve, but you know, there's still a long way to go. So to me, that's the worrying and the worst part. And will I ever be, I would say, prepared to let go? Because I, I do try to give him as much independence, but I worry. What when he's driving? What when he leaves home? What when he starts drinking? Um, I can't expect him to not do anything I did as a teenager. And that, that worries me. Do you feel it's almost more difficult for Oliver as he grows, I suppose, through his young teenage years because he's more aware of it. Whereas when he was younger, he might have been slightly more oblivious to the whole thing. Yeah. But now that he's yeah. in school, he has friends, he wants to do these different yeah. things. Do you feel yeah. it's more difficult for him now? Yeah, it's more difficult. It's the hardest it's ever been for him this past 12, 18 months. It's a bit of rebelliousness. It is, it's, it is a teenager at the end of the day. And... All teenage, most teenagers rebel, you know, against something, and he's got this extra uh, variable in his life as such. And I've got to try not blame diabetes for everything as well. I'm sure the character that he is is very strong-willed, very independent. He always has been. So, you know, it's easy for me to blame diabetes as well when sometimes it's probably just him being a teenager, but he'll take it out on his diabetes and punish himself. You know, by not testing and but yeah, I think all teenagers just want to fit in and he doesn't fit in if he's got to test and do insulin and watch what he's eating and carb count and all these extra things he's got to do. It is a big responsibility and I think I try to take that away from him by me doing it instead. Uh, so I prepare, he's always done his own injections from day one. But if I prepare pen and put the needle on and put the strip in his meter, vitamin carb count, if I do them little things, he doesn't have to do it. Um, but equally, he doesn't like me doing them either. But if I let him do them, he just doesn't do it. So it's hard to find that fine line and the balance. But it's just a big one big constant worry for me. Um, I've not worked out how to get past that yet, I'll be honest. On average, and I obviously know this myself, on average, a, a type 1 diabetic is going to have an additional 180 to 320 mm -hmm. decisions to make each day. Yeah. And that makes sense to me in my own head because I know of all these different decisions. And uh -huh. I was diagnosed at an age where I was old enough to make those decisions myself. And yeah. I always thought, how does that go through a parent's head? Yeah. So, How old were you when you were diagnosed? Just remind me. I was 19. So I was yeah. old enough to kind of understand the severity okay, of it, understand yeah. that I needed to take care of it. Mm -hmm. You feel yourself constantly having these 180 to 320 decisions each day. Yeah. Yeah. They're definitely there. I'm a big believer in uh, like burnout diabetic burnout and as a carer to a diabetic you can get that too yeah i believe it's nearer to the 320 or whatever it was you said like already you know it's just gone 10 in the morning he's actually still in bed he's awake 
but already I've had to make quite a few decisions. He's not had anything to eat yet. Them decisions are, should I test his blood or encourage him to, um, is he okay to stay in bed for a bit longer? Does he need anything to eat? Already we've had to make quite a few decisions. So, yeah, I think that's what leads to burnout. And I think when you are burnt out, you don't think straight. You don't think as uh, as you would if you weren't burnt out and tired. It's a tough one. It's really tough. Can you compare, even off the top of your head, can you compare days that go better for you guys, blood sugar-wise, Yeah. with days that don't go as good blood sugar wise yeah i think the days that go well um is testing reasonably often and he's in a better mood he feels better he looks brighter he gets a sparkle back in his eye and that i don't realize goes i only ever notice it when it comes back and i noticed then in hindsight that it had gone uh, he's got more energy and i'll be honest he's a much more pleasant boy to be around on those days but I don't think he's realised yet that he feels better on the days that he's looking after himself. On a bad day, he can snooze all day because he's literally too high for his metre to read, so above 33. We have had a lot of days like that this year in lockdown. And I don't think he realised how bad it makes him feel and it's almost normal to him because he's constantly high. He felt hypo yesterday and his blood was 10. So we've got to retune his body as such. But yeah, it's it's so tough. Really tough. <laughs> so basically, Oliver is, he has that hypo anxiety, as most yeah. people would do, because a hypo is the last thing yeah. we want to experience. <clears throat> and because of that, he almost prefers to have his blood sugar consistently higher. Yeah. And then because his bloods are consistently higher, he almost adapts to that feeling and therefore he feels a hypo a lot higher than a hypo actually is. That's right, yeah. Because to him being 10, his blood being 10 is is low. And and I do believe that he feels hypo when his blood's 10. But obviously that's not hypo. He needs to to help his body relearn what hypo feels. But he's so, so used to being so high that it, to him it feels normal and that's why he doesn't feel like he's poorly. He does feel unwell, but he doesn't realise that he's unwell. Uh, I know it's quite common. A lot of people with type 1 tell me they purposely run a little bit high, especially say if they're working or in a, you know, driving or a situation where they really don't want to have a low. But there's a difference in purposely running a tiny bit higher and running at you know, your blood's in 20s and even beyond that, so tough. And obviously we've got hormones now, he's six foot two, he's a young man. Um, so we've got hormones to consider as well now. So how has your responsibility physically with diabetes in relation to the injections and the blood checking uh-huh. and just taking it all on board, which you obviously still have to do as a yeah. parent, but how has that changed from when Oliver was younger, say the age of six, to now when he's in his young teens? Um, I think, like I say, I try to take the pressure off him by doing as much of it I can. He's never really let me inject him. 
physically. He's always done that. Sometimes we'd do some when he was younger, but I'm still doing everything I did when he was young. I'm still, I, me or his dad have to suggest you need to do your blood. Or, um, we're careful how we word that. <laughs> so it doesn't feel like a demand to him. But we've got to put the, if we didn't initiate it, it wouldn't happen. And, and we tried giving him control and he'd go two or three days with no insulin at all, uh, which obviously ain't good. So we have to prepare his meter, prepare the insulin pen, get the insulin <coughs> restocked. We have to do everything. Carb count. It does. It can carb count and it can do it accurately. It does not. Um, but he's just not interested. So I'm just seeing it that we're taking some pressure off him by, by helping. I often think about it, again, from my own experience and due to the fact that because I was 19, I, mm-hmm. I kind of skipped those teen years as a diabetic. Yeah. I, I think of how difficult that must be because I obviously went through that phase of you yeah. know, the rebellious teenager not wanting to do what my parents say, yeah. not following any of their advice. But because I wasn't diabetic yet, yeah. my blood sugar didn't suffer because of that. Yeah, yeah. It's so, so tough. what's his, and I know you mentioned that he has another diabetic friend. Yeah. What's his experience or what's his relationship like with his other diabetic friend? Do they um, talk about their diabetes? Is that part of their friendship? No, we used to, I mean, we are heavily involved in type 1 community locally and we've always gone to meetups and, you know, JDRF events were brilliant. Um, we were fortunate, and this sounds horrible, and we have discussed it with the other parent, but three months after he was diagnosed, another boy in his class at school got diagnosed, which in a way was the best thing that could have happened to both Oliver and his friend Sam. So we had three months. It was horrible for three months with no support. We'd not met any of and it was just before Christmas when he got diagnosed. So we went through that first two or three months of winter totally on our own and feeling lost and I'd cry at three o'clock in the morning because it was the only time I could when he were asleep and then this his nurse rang up and she said another little boy in, in his school has been diagnosed and I think they're in the same class and they were but they're, they're a year there's different school years uh, but at times same class because it was a small school they mixed the year groups so we got very good friends and still are to this day with this other family but now both boys are 14 they pick their own friends and like I said they are a school there's only six months in their age but Sam is in the younger school year and because of Covid as well the school years aren't mixing even at dinner time you, can, you know it's like one section of school per year group and they're not allowed to leave that section so he wouldn't have the opportunity to see this other kid at school. We could meet up with them out of school, they, you know, with, with, with each other like that, but it's just not happened. And I think it's just that they're older now and mum doesn't choose your friends. When we were younger, we could arrange play dates and days out. But I'll be honest, they're like chalk and cheese, these two kids. And, you know, they've got different interests and they're both very different. And maybe that can work as well, but at the moment he's not interested in meeting anyone who's diabetic. Um, and because it would need my involvement, it's, uh, Mum, no, you're only taking me because I've got type 1. 
you know, your almost seizure is my label in name if I says, come and meet my friend's child who's your age and has just got diagnosed. No, no, you're only taking me because you're labelling me. You seize it like that at the moment. But I do think peer support is the most important thing, both for the person with diabetes and parents or other loved ones. I think it's harder for me that he was young when he got diagnosed because I fully understand everything that it entails. I think had he been, say, away at university or something, I don't know if I'd understand it in as much detail as I do. I'd obviously read up on it, but I think because I've been the person that, you know, I didn't work for a few years after we were diagnosed and I had to go into school on a very regular basis, like sometimes two and three times a day because school wouldn't ketone test. And I think because I've done seven, eight, nine tests a day, and he had good control and every single thing that went in his mouth got cab counted because he has had that uh, level of involvement that's what I strive to get now um, and I have to accept that he's probably not going to do seven tests a day and you know three or four might be good enough and only cab counting meals might be good enough if he has an odd pack of crisps or a banana and he don't test, that's okay. So, yeah, but I think had he been, say, 20, 21 when he got diagnosed and he'd already left home, I wouldn't have that comparison because he'd have always done it himself. Do you know what I mean? Mm. Uh, I think I've had to learn that being perfect with it isn't important. You don't have to be perfect all the time. And that's what I tried to do for a few years. I tried with... He, he did have an Omnipod for a while, and his average number of tests was seven each day. So we were actually testing seven times a day on average and doing the corrections and, you know, the Omnipod delivering insulin every time. And I think we had control, I think his control were around 50, 52 maybe, his A1C. Uh, so that did work for us, but he didn't want the Omnipod in end. He had it for two or three years and he'd had enough of it. And he'd get infections from when the cannula were in constantly and he'd, he'd just got fed up. So it's his choice and he chose to come off it. But I think I tried to get back to where we were for the first few years after diagnosis. And realistically, you know, maybe, maybe that's not even needed. You've got to get on with life as well and let, you know, not, don't let diabetes take over. Just let it sit there in the background. And not don't let it dominate your life. You've got to get balanced right, if that makes sense. Absolutely. And I think it's it's obviously been so difficult for you both and you personally, and mm-hmm. still is. And I have spoken to obviously loads of diabetics at this at this point, and I've spoken to parents of diabetics, and it's a common theme that going through these teen years, it is more difficult. Yeah. So yeah. even though I wasn't a young teenager when I was diagnosed, I want to mm-hmm. try and reassure you that it's normal for teenagers to go through this period. Yeah. And from the people that I've spoken to, even personally who were diagnosed as children, they yeah. admittedly say that the teen years were, were difficult They're because tough. they yeah. have that phase where they don't want to look after it. They want to yeah. avoid it. They want to neglect it. They, want, they just deny that yeah. it exists. 
that's exactly where he is. He's in denial. And I think in hindsight, I think I I call it a grieving process when he's diagnosed, because it is. You get angry and you get all the same emotions that you get with a, a bereavement and eventually you come to accept it. Um, and I think I've gone through that and accepted it. And he just put that on hold. You got on with life and now he's going through that. He's grieving for his pancreas, really, the day that he could just eat without thinking about it. And, you know, it's a case of you don't know what you've got until it's gone. But I think he's in that grieving stage now and he's going through those emotions and I've been through it and come out the other side. And his dad too, you know, my partner, he gets involved and he's same. Despite things being as difficult as they are and I know firsthand Mm -hmm. we have a lot of parents that listen to the podcast and have kids similar ages to Oliver or even younger yeah do you have any advice for them as parents that you feel could benefit them um my first advice would be connect with others because you know you, you feel like you're the only one going through this And obviously there's a lot of misconceptions around diabetes and you've probably challenged some of them yourself when you got diagnosed. I remember telling Oliver I can't eat chocolate. This is while he was in hospital. Um, You know, obviously we soon got educated about that. But I just think mixed with other people, one of the best things that's come out of this is the friends we've made. And it's such a supportive community. So use it. Some people use it more than others, um, but it is there and there is support out there from people that just get it. And I think that's a problem in everyday life. Like other mums at school get, they don't get it. Um, So you'd have to explain like, oh, he's hypoed again, it's great. I could just talk to another mum like that and she knew what it was, but any other mum didn't get it. But there's a community out there that do just get it, so use it. That would be my advice. And the second piece of advice somebody gave me recently when I wrote my book, somebody I've known a long time who's got type 1 herself, she had no idea what we were going through, but her advice was remember that you can change your diabetic team. You're not stuck with the one you were assigned to at diagnosis. And we changed team in New Year this year, and that's why his A1C has come down from 130 to 105 just in four weeks. That's because we've got a new team now and it's like choosing a doctor or, you know, a dentist. There's different ones and your best friend might get on with one you don't and vice versa. It's just finding the team that's right for you because you can change. Even if, it, I mean, ours is only, you know, in Leeds, which is half an hour away. But even if it's in another part of the country, it is actually possible to change. Uh, certainly in England, you can go to any anywhere in the country as long as you can physically get yourself there uh, and I know the doctor we have got Fiona Campbell at Leeds she does have even international patients privately obviously and she's got NHS patients that come up from London to see her so it, that that is possible to do and I don't think I'd ever really thought of changing team. With regard to changing teams and even the experience that you have had changing mm-hmm. your diabetic team there was obviously yeah a drastic improvement with his A1C, which was yeah. 130 down to 105. Yeah. 
what exactly yeah. made the difference with the new team? What were they uh, helping Oliver with? The language they used. Can I point out with his previous team, he'd not been to clinic for two years. Uh, and now he goes once a month without complaining. Uh, and it's because of the language they use with him. The old team used to force him. Like, the, the Noah hates annual bloods. So, I mean, when he was eight and nine, he'd sit on him so that he couldn't run off and take his blood. And I used to say, that's not right. He's scared of needles at end of day. He can cope with insulin pen needles, but he hates those annual bloods, which I know is quite common. But, yeah, I remember four or five people pinning him down so they could get blood, whereas this team said, Oliver, look, you've not had a blood test in over two years. We need, you know, you know the benefits of, of having a blood test, but we're not going to force you because... You know, you're old enough now to make your own decisions, even if you make the one that we feel is wrong. And he just went, oh, yeah, okay, then I'll have my bloods done. And he had it done there and then. No issues, no fighting. Then they told him uh, when he first went, the first clinic appointment, they introduced him to the team. Uh, They said, here's Oliver. He's an expert in type 1 because he's had it for over seven years now. So they were making him feel that he's the expert, he's lived with this. And they're acknowledging that they, some of the team do have type one, as it turns out, but they're acknowledging that they're not the experts. You know, they're the professionals, but they're not the ones living with this day in, day out. And they seem to acknowledge that. So I think the main thing that's made the difference is the language that they're using. And they're not asking, how have you been? How have your bloods been? When we go to clinic, they ask, how are you, Oliver? How have you been? How's your football training going? How's school? You know, is everything else before he's diabetic? And I think that's what's actually made the difference, the seeing him as a whole person, not just a, a, a diagnosis. And that's what's made the difference, in my opinion. Yeah, that's good to hear. And I have obviously heard plenty of different stories of yeah. people's experiences within their diabetic clinics. And you're absolutely right and particularly from your own experience to say that how they speak to you and how they show a greater understanding or an enhanced sense of empathy Mm -hmm. towards a diabetic makes Mm -hmm. such a big difference. It makes a difference with the person emotionally, because as I always say on this podcast, as much as a physical condition diabetes is, Mm -hmm. physical side of it is only going to be looked after if we're, right with Mm -hmm. it emotionally and psychologically yeah definitely so do you feel that even how they changed how they spoke to oliver obviously benefited Mm -hmm. him while he was in there and and physically getting his bloods and his a1c done Mm -hmm. did he then take that home with him did he feel better about things at all because of his new team yeah definitely yeah he actually said to me last week he went mom says, they actually do care about me at that team, don't they? I says, yeah. And they went, but they go home and they'll be worried about the patients. He says, they don't just see it like a job, like the other team did. I said, you're exactly right. They're in that profession because they care. But they do actually, they will go home and be worried about you and be proud about you, that you're starting to turn things around. They don't just switch off at five o'clock you know, and go home and forget about it till the day after. So they do actually enjoy the work and they do actually care about the patients and want the best for them. 
and he could see that and he pointed that out. So hopefully it's this, you know, the start of a, a new beginning. You've obviously had, Joe, your, yeah. your own experiences over the years and specifically living with diabetes in the UK with Oliver. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You've then got involved with the Pensy Trust, the Pensy That's Trust, right, yeah. which is basically helping people in India get yeah. affordable insulin. Can you tell us That's more about right. that? Yeah, definitely. Um, about a year after Oliver were diagnosed, we wanted to have a party, eat lots of cake, and maybe improve awareness of type 1. Obviously, the 4T is the main symptom, so other people can be aware to look out for it, but also to help his school friends at the time understand what he were going through. So we held a big party, and there were lots of chocolate cake that got eaten. Uh, and we thought, why not do this for a charity? And obviously, we're all big supporters of JDRF. But I just felt, I found this little charity called Pensy Trust. And at the time, they just registered as a charity in the UK. And a girl called Lucy, uh, she's now called Lucy Todd, now she's married. She was running this all on her own. Her family were helping and she'd volunteers. But she'd been to India as a young journalist and done a report, uh, which if it's okay, I'll send you that link um, it's on YouTube. And she did a, a, a radio documentary for BBC about a clinic in Nagpur, which is in central India. If you threw a dart in the middle of a map of India, it should land in Nagpur. And it's a very big city. I've not heard of it, but it's one of India's largest cities. It's not very touristy which is why you've probably not heard of it. But there's a, a doctor there, Dr. Penzi, Sharad Penzi, and he runs uh, a clinic. For, he does treat type 2 as well, uh, but most of his patients are type 1. And in the 1990s, uh, a guy came to him with his young daughter, I think she was four or five-year-old, and she was basically in DKA, and she were undiagnosed type 1. But the dad knew um, she had type 1 symptoms and he, could, he knew he couldn't afford insulin on an ongoing basis and that's why he didn't get his daughter diagnosed. And sadly, it was too late. By the time he got to clinic and the girl died. And then I think it were only a year after one of Dr. Penzi's diagnosed patients um, who were very compliant. Uh, they always went to appointments and, and meetups because his clinic's on a little park. And he still, to this day, organises meetups for his, his patients. And, you know, the family had been very, very good doing what they needed to do. And then one day, uh, this girl died. And the dad says, I couldn't afford the insulin anymore. And these are what are called daily wage workers. And the nearest we'd have would be zero-hour contracts. So these are people who are literally employed for their labour on a farm, usually. And they get a day rate. And they literally work every day like hours. So they're up with sun and, you know, until the sun goes down, they're doing manual labour in fields. And I think today's comparison is like one US dollar a day, whereas insulin in pounds, English pounds, it's £16 a month for their healthcare and treatment. So these people are already living on the poverty line. So it were obviously upset that two... Uh, needless deaths had occurred so he set up a trust he set his clinic up as a charity 
and is non-profit making so any profit that he makes from patients that can afford to pay gets redirected to patients who can't so lucy did this report and she was so moved and inspired by what she'd seen and the children that she'd met that she set up a charity in the uk called pensy trust and pensy trust funds uh, dr pensy's clinic basically that's the only clinic we fund and I were impressed that I think we raised about £400 at that party. And we sponsored a little girl who was Oliver's age. I think there's a year in them and they were diagnosed around the same time. But this girl called Ruchita, she couldn't even, her family couldn't even afford the train fare to clinic. And it's four hours away. She lives about 200 miles from clinic. And I've worked out online, I use like the Indian trainline.com. The train fares 50 pence return and they couldn't afford that. So they get a travel grant as well with the money, they get insulin. But the insulin is only a short term funding until one day Ruchita will be independent herself because we fund education. Like a lot of these children have to leave school. In India, there's no legal requirement to stay in school. So even if they're eight, nine year old, sadly, they'll have to leave school and go find work to fund the medical care. And that puts them at, um, at risk as well of being exploited. So we fund education as first and foremost. The insulin's the short term. And then the education's the second thing. We keep them in school to equivalent to what's GCSE in UK. And we've even paid for university courses. We've paid for girls to become nurses. Uh, we've paid for girls to become engineers. So they're actually challenging gender inequality as well as poverty. Um, we've funded business startups. Not everyone's suited to go to college. Some people just need, like women especially, they'll need £70 to buy a sewing machine. And that means they can set up a tailoring business. We had a young man who needed to buy a goat, and that was £40, and he's a goat farmer now. So he farms the goat milk and he sells it door-to-door -door around his local villages. That means he can afford to buy his insulin. But what really upset me about uh, the situation in India is that although type 1 affects equal numbers of males and females, Dr. Penzi finds 90% of the patients who need his help are female, and that's down to the gender inequality. The girls are seen as, they're not seen as equal, and in a country where arranged marriage is still very high, the families find it hard to marry off the girls because, you know, the family of the male see it as a big liability. So we challenge that by saying, look, yes, this person's diabetic, but they can actually afford their own insulin. So I, I found it good that our money was sponsoring one child, but and we've since sponsored another child, a little boy, but I felt that money were needed in a, a bigger sense. I thought, well, what about all the other children that need his help? And that's when I made a commitment to spread the word about what the charity does, but raise funds, uh, several fundraisers a year. And I eventually became trustee. And 
I went to India in 2007. We went at our own expense because the, the other good thing is absolutely nothing is taken in admin costs or anything. We're lucky to have volunteers that volunteer like web services, marketing, accountancy, every sort of service that we need is donated and we couldn't do that without the amazing people that support us. So we self-funded a trip and I've wrote a blog on the Pensy Trust uh, website which is pensytrust.org.uk and that explains how we account for every penny both in the UK and when it gets to India we can actually state where every penny has, has, has been and it gets through to the children. Some charities, every penny gets through to the charity, but then, you know, even small charities, they've got the trustees flying first class around world or taking huge salaries that aren't justified in comparison to how much is coming in. Uh, so we're proud that we can actually say every penny gets through to the actual children and India showed me how they make sure that that's not exploited on their side. They take bank references, employer references, bank statements, and people are prioritised in order of need. So I thought that was really, really good. And obviously COVID has affected India very badly. And we're now not taking on new sponsors for individual children. And with a strict lockdown in India, it's been hard for people to get to clinic. So now we're giving emergency COVID grants. And that's literally a grant for these people to walk into their local pharmacy and just buy insulin over the counter because that's the only way they can get it. Uh, so that's what we're focusing on at the moment. So, yeah. yeah, I'm just grateful that despite what we are going through with Oliver, that we're not paying for insulin, obviously being in a country with an NHS. And I appreciate, you know, in America and even Canada, even in the Western world, there's people that can't afford insulin. But I've got two shelves of one of my cupboards just full of testing strips, ketone strips, lancets, everything that we could ever need. And I'm very grateful for that. So one way of giving back is to help uh, other people to afford their insulin and it's a very sustainable approach that Pensy Trust has got so that's why I, I chose to get behind them. It's one of those things that you really only learn to fully appreciate mm -hmm. how convenient the access is yeah. to insulin. For me even in Ireland I have yeah. always got my stuff covered by the, yeah. by the HSE which is fantastic Yeah, and it's only when you hear stories like you've yeah. just told that you're like, yeah. oh, I have it easy. You know, as difficult Definitely. as diabetes can be at times, yeah. I have it easy. We have it easy. For me, it's solidarity with other parents. You know, there's other parents in the developing world who had their child diagnosed with the same condition as my child, but their outcome is so different because they can't afford the, the medication. And... Can I tell you a little story about one of the children that I met? Please. We met in clinic a boy um, whose name I can't remember. But he was about 12 or 13 and he'd been diagnosed for about four months. Uh, and again, he lived quite away from clinic and he'd found out about Dr. Penzi and the amazing work that he does, not just him, but his whole team are so amazing. 
and they'd visited clinic and they happened to be there the day that one of the days we were there and his mum uh, was begging she obviously didn't speak uh, English were begging to me and crying and pleading with me in Hindi and the translator said she were asking for something to keep insulin cold and she were crying because they live in a, a remote village with no electricity and no running water and they live in a mud hut. They literally have to rebuild their house every year because it gets washed away in the monsoon. Uh, and the boy had been only injecting twice a week, two injections of Novorapid a week because they wanted the one vial of insulin they'd bought to last him forever. And mum had got in her head that once they'd used that vial up, and they do inject with vials, they have the old-fashioned syringes, they have to use whatever they can get. She sort of had it in her head that once that vial had been used up, the boy were going to die. So she was trying to ration the insulin, and he was only having two injections a week, and he was very poorly, he was almost in DKA. And it turns out he was, he'd been like expelled from school because there's also an issue with seeing insulin as Western medicine. We've heard stories of families getting snake charmers, thinking that can cure the child. So we've got that extra hurdle too. And she thought that once her boy had finally used this insulin, that, that were it, the can't afford more. So she'd been reassured at clinic that we won't let that happen. Uh, so it turned out he was storing the insulin in the mud because that was the only way he could keep it cool. It gets to 45 Celsius in India. And the only way it could keep insulin caught, and we had insulin that had gone off in the heat and we were staying in air-conditioned hotels that had a fridge and we still had some pens that went cloudy. So I can't, I can't imagine having to keep insulin cold with no water and no refrigeration. And yeah, he was storing it in the mud and then injecting muddy insulin into himself twice a week. Barely survived. So we put a shout out on our social media and we've got a lovely family in the UK that now sponsor him. It's £200 a year or £16 a month. And he injects three, four times a day. He's in a new school. Uh, and he's just doing really, really well. But we also sent him Frio bag. So it's sustainable. He still lives in you know, a village that's cut off from utilities. But all he needs is a small amount of water to keep the Frio bag cool for three days. And he can get that water at school. And you know, just a small Frio bag that costs £15 uh, has made a massive sustainable difference to his life. And we did contact Frio UK and they did donate quite a few bags to clinic at, you know, at no cost. Uh, I think we sent 100 or maybe, I think we sent 200 Frio bags out there so all the patients could have one. And since then we had a fundraising campaign as well to, to buy some more, which they bought locally, they bought in India because it was cheaper than paying import tax and shipping. But just one tiny little thing uh, that we keep in cupboard really and just use for a holiday once a year um, has, has actually changed that child's life and if I compare the pictures of him recently to when I met him when he went well it's just amazing to think it's the same person you know he's put on weight he's got that sparkle in his eye again and he's actually got a really bright future ahead of him now it's unbelievable it's yeah like it's very upsetting to even hear that 
people have to deal with diabetes on top of those sort of conditions. And like it even just, it just puts our own situation into perspective. And I'm sitting here thinking now, like, how dare I complain about anything related to my diabetes? Yeah, I'm saying, I find myself moaning at parking at hospital and then I think, hang on, it's okay, it's five pounds park or whatever, that's it. Or there's a queue for chemist. Okay, there's a queue for chemist, but then I'm getting thousands of pounds worth. We've just picked a big order up this week, two months supply, you know, and I know when that runs out, before that runs out, I'll have ordered the next. So, yeah, we just need to be grateful for what we do have and that we have got the resources to manage this. Mm. So how did you feel when you came home from India after experiencing all of that? It was very moving, but I were actually very, I were more motivated than ever to make a difference because what I didn't expect, I think Lucy from the Trust has been out there three times now and one or two other people have, have, have visited clinic of some of our supporters. But what I didn't expect was also meeting success stories. So I think Penzi Trust has probably been going nine or ten years now in some form or other. Uh, I think it's 10 years this summer since Lucy went and did that documentary. And from day, she sponsored a child while she were there. She was so moved 10 years ago. She literally gave Dr. Penzi some money for that child and that's how the charity grew. And I think because it's been 10 years now, we've got adults um, that we, you know, if they were 10 years old back then, now they're 20 so they might have graduated or qualified in something and I wasn't prepared for meeting the success stories and, and I met many and that's just social proof that what we're doing works and um, two girls I met two young ladies and they just that it was August when we went and they just that summer graduated from nursing college and we'd funded their nursing college and, you know, university over there is so much cheaper than here. It's like two or three hundred pound a year um, at a good school. So it's not expensive, but yet it's making a huge difference to the, these people's lives. And one of the nurses, she just got a first job on like a cardiac ward. And that's what she wanted to specialise in cardiac nursing. And the other one had got a job actually at the university teaching on the the nursing courses and these are people that also grew up in mud huts and didn't otherwise wouldn't have gone to school so I think because I'd seen that what we're doing works I was motivated to to help and to fundraise and we did have a big fundraising drive when I got back I guess fueled off my passion uh, and that comes across, you know, online, and it resulted in donations and, and offers of help, like Freo. At the time, Freo donated 200 bags. So I think it is important to go out there uh, at my own expense. And just such a small amount of money, you know, has made the difference. We couldn't fund university for children if, it, if they were in the UK, because we're looking at like 50 grand to get them through three years of college. But if it's only costing seven, eight hundred pound, then yeah, we, you know, and we fund it termly. We, we send uh, transfers every quarter. 
So we get feedback that they are attending and they are getting good grades. You know, we don't just like say, here's some money. Every single thing is accounted for. It's just amazing, really. You can see the difference that even £10 can make. £10 can actually turn someone's life around in India. Yeah, as you say, small amounts can have such a massive impact. Yeah. Was your trip and experience in India, did that play a role in inspiring you to write your book? Definitely, yeah. I think it was something that had always sat in the back of my mind. I support people often when their children get diagnosed. Sadly, an old school friend who I'd not seen for years, she messaged me two years ago nearly saying, Joe, my son's just been diagnosed, he's five, and we've got, you know, reignited a friendship that we'd maybe not had since we were 13. Friends of friends, like, oh, why don't my mate Joe get in touch? So I find that I'm almost a bit of a support group for people, and I found my friend Lindsay uh, in particular, whose son got diagnosed two years ago. I was sending her, she, she, I noticed she was going through exactly what I'd, I'd gone through and she were asking the same questions that I used to ask and she says, will he ever walk home from school alone? And I says, he will, Oliver does it. And he did it at the same age all his friends did. So at the moment, he's, you know, your child Riley, he's five. You can't imagine your five-year-old walking home in three or four years' time from school because of his age it's like when you've got a baby you can't imagine that baby being a school-aged child it's the same thing this isn't yeah diabetes is something you'll have to consider but you will give him a phone school allowed oliver to have a little cheap nokia phone um, so he could ring me on way to or from school and he will have some sugar in his bag and you will say to his friends if he don't feel well tell him he needs to test and have the sugar you know you will you will have you, you will have to start letting go and you will do it. It just seems a, a bigger step at the moment. And then once he's walking on from school, you might start letting him play out for half an hour, not supervised. And that half an hour becomes an hour and an hour becomes a morning and the morning becomes a day. And I'm not at this stage yet, but eventually it'll be overnight stays without you. And, you know, it just comes gradually like anything else in parenting. It's small steps, um, but I was finding, I was sending her links to people. She'd be like, do you think he'll, you know, what if it goes to uni? And I'm like, yep, he'll go to uni if he wants to. Diabetes won't stop him. And I was sending her links to people who have done uh, some amazing things and some everyday things that us type one parents worry about. Uh, and people who have um, maybe kicked diabetes in the face a little bit um and i just thought why don't i put this on a blog and then other parents can access it because uh, these people were reassuring her and, and inspiring her and i'll be honest i started the blog and i forgot the login <laughs> uh, so i thought why don't i make it a book um and get it on amazon and maybe donate the funds to pensy trust and jdrf um so that's exactly what i did and in the UK's second lockdown, which started in October, I thought, right, if I've got to be at home for a, a couple of months, why don't I write the book? So I did, and then I had a stupid idea, and I thought, why don't I release it on like World Diabetes Day, November 14th? 
So that's what I did. And then I realised that we're only five weeks away. So I wrote the entire 48,000 page, 48,000 word, 170 page book in five weeks. So you'll have to just excuse odd little spelling or grammar error. But yeah, I found, I think it were nine or 10 people with type one that had inspired me. And I interviewed them and I, I ghost wrote most of the stories. One guy, um, we spoke to Glenn, and Glenn's a friend of mine uh, who I happen to know anyway, and he happens to have type one. And Glenn has flown planes. He has been a pilot in air cadets, but he got told he'd never fly a plane. So, of course, that's exactly what he wanted to do. So he found a way he could do it. And I know you spoke to someone on your podcast that's an airline pilot. I listened to that uh, a few nights ago. So even things you get told you can't do at diagnosis, you can do, you can find a way. Um, I've spoke to uh, Jade Sloan from Pricks, and Jade's an actress. Um, she's been on Holby City and various TV shows, and she's done a lot of theatre. She's done, uh, she's got her own show now called Pricks. She's done amazing things, and she talks about how she avoids hypos on stage, done a lot of dancing, a lot of physical sort of things that diabetes might decide it's going to put a stumbling block there. And that's what Jade said. She says, you know, you can actually do anything. You just might have that extra little hurdle to jump over, but you can jump over it. And we spoke to Mary. Mary is, she's had type 1 for 50 years now. She's waiting for a medal. Um, that you get after 50 years, and it's well-deserved, in my opinion. Mary has had children, and that's the other thing that worried me. Will it stop him having a family if he wants one? But Mary had two children. I won't say totally free. She did have, I think, a couple of issues in pregnancy, but she had two healthy girls in 80s, and she's too been to India. She's been to Dr. Penz's clinic twice, I think. But yeah, there's lots of people uh, in the book. We've got Laura, Laura Dunyon, and she's um, actually been to America, to the White House, and she convinced senators to fund JDRF. I think it's like 150 million a year. Um, She trekked through the Alps. She went to France with some other um, people with type one, and she trekked through the Alps and she said, you know, blood sugars were up and down as much as, as the peaks. Uh, but she did it, you know. And there's these people out there doing these amazing things. But I don't think, as a parent, you get to hear about them. You only get to hear the bad side when it goes wrong. And that's why I thought I'd put some positive stories out there, not, you know, fully acknowledge uh, how serious diabetes is and that it's quite easy for things to go very wrong very quickly. Um, But as parents, we we all know that. And when we look online for reassurance, there's not much out there. But I I just found the reality. I think I've actually met in person most people in the book. Um, There's probably only two or three I've not met in real life. And I've just found the reality of the old people, like adults, that lived with type 1 a long time, their reality is very different to what I found when I went online for reassurance. And that's why I put it out there. I'd just like to mention one person who's in my book, if that's okay. 
Absolutely. Someone, someone you might want to interview on your podcast um, is Rebecca Redmond, and Rebecca's in Canada, and uh, she's had type one since she was eighteen, and I think she's nearly forty now. She had a good twenty twenty two year maybe. Um, Rebecca struggled uh, for many many years until she became pregnant, and pregnancy turned her life round and was the start of her looking after herself and I think her son's 10 now 10 or 11 but what's interesting about Rebecca is that she's actually a cousin of Sir Frederick Banting who discovered insulin and she grew up knowing that she were related to him obviously she is an ancestral cousin and the, you know the family knew who he were and what he'd done but then when she got diagnosed herself, it meant so much more. But yet Rebecca uh, lives in Canada and she does have health insurance, but she still has to pay something towards it. And, you know, even Dr. Banting's cousin, 100 years on, struggles to access insulin, uh, which is why she became a supporter of Pensy Trust as well, because there's a big chapter on Dr. Banting in my book and his work and how he selflessly gave away the patent to, in, in, uh, to the university for insulin. He sold it for like a penny or something because he wanted everybody who needed insulin to be able to afford it. Yeah, I'd love to get her on and have, her, have yeah, a chat I'll about put that. I'll you in touch because she'll be more than happy to, you know, she's an ambassador for a lot of type 1 charities as well. But I think she'd be great for you to speak to. Yeah, Absolutely. It must be interesting for her personally knowing that yeah. her distant relative is the reason. Mm -hmm. Basically, she's still alive today. She's still alive. Her chapter of my book is called My Cousin Saved My Life Even Though He Died 58 Years Earlier or something like that, you know. Joe, did you feel more reassured about your own and Oliver's situation after learning more about these success stories with the people that you interviewed for yeah, your book? definitely. I found a thought I were writing the book for other parents to be reassured, but I realised I were actually writing it for myself as well. Um, and originally the idea for my book was, I'll write this book to reassure other parents and raise some money along the way. And I found out, yeah, I'm reassuring me, but I'm also celebrating these people. You know, we've got, for example, um, there's a young girl who she's 21 now and she were actually, she had her pancreas removed at birth. She's got a condition called CHI, congenital hyperinsulinism. And that's like the opposite to type one. She made too much insulin. And from the minute she was born, she were having like serious seizures and her blood sugars were like 0.7 and they were worried she'd have brain damage. I think she was in hospital for two months and they ended up removing all of the pancreas because that was the only way they could stop the insulin and none of the other treatments worked. So she's not got a pancreas at all, which uh, leads to other medical complications too because your pancreas does have other jobs that, that you know most people with type 1 can still do. Um, but she has lots of conditions to manage. But... Her experience inspired her to become a doctor herself and she's in medical school now in London um, and she feels that 
being type one has almost given her an advantage. Like she can empathize on a different level with her patients and she's seen how conditions can affect the whole body, like diabetes. It can, as you know, affect every organ in the body. Um, so she thinks that she thinks more holistically when she's like dealing with patients. She's obviously three years into medical school, not a lot in grand scheme of qualifying for a doctor. Um, but she's always got that in her mind that, you know, these conditions, a lot of conditions affect many organs in the body. And she thinks that allows her to think differently. But I think um, with that young lady, it's amazing what she's doing. But to anyone who doesn't understand type one, you might say, well, lots of kids do well at school and go to uni. But we know the extra um, hurdles that she's had to overcome to get there. Mm. Uh, and I think the book celebrates that fact too. It's one of those conditions that you don't truly understand the complexities or the intricacies of it. Yeah, unless you've lived with it either yourself or someone very, very close to you. Well, yeah. Like my parents obviously find it hard to understand, but they do understand it's serious. But I think even some family members don't understand. I remember two years maybe after diagnosis, we had a family meet-up for my nephew's birthday and my brothers were really shocked at how often we had to test and do insulin. Like, I didn't realise, you know, I think they just thought it were you test it morning and night and a few injections, like a prescribed amount, like take two tablets three times a day. I don't think they realised what it entailed until we went away for a weekend and they, they saw what we were doing. Yeah, I think you've got to live in the same household as someone to fully understand. Yeah, it's a constant 24-hour job that you need to essentially always be switched on to, unfortunately. Yeah. I've one more question for you, Joe, and yeah. I've actually never asked a parent this on the podcast before, so you're the first. Go on. Go on. <laughs> if you had the opportunity to thank diabetes for something, what would that be? To thank diabetes for something um i think i'm hoping it gives us some resilience um like i say there's a good community out there but i think more than anything i think the difference we've made to the lives of other people overall like through the charity and through and i don't even like calling it a charity because like i say we aim at these people not depending on charity in the long run but through the people we've got to help and through the people that have helped us and, and, and the giving back does that make sense absolutely and even just from speaking with you today it mm -hmm. it's it's quite clear how difficult things have been and mm -hmm. are still mm -hmm. but the fact that oliver was diagnosed and the fact that you both and your family goes through this with him each day. The positive yeah. side to that is the massive Im impact and influence you've had on mm -hmm. so many people's I'm lives in India. So it's inspiring yeah. for me to hear of these stories and it, it certainly puts my own mm -hmm. situation into perspective. So thanks a million for your time. I really Thank appreciate you. it. Do you want to say hello, Oliver? It? It's a guy called Owen in Ireland whose podcast that I'm on. No, he don't want to say hello to you. <laughs> He's making me a coffee, so I'll let him off. <laughs> well, tell Oliver I said hello. And if he ever says, I yes. can help him with anything in the future, give me a shout, all right? Thank you. Joe, will you tell us briefly, quickly, where we can 
learn more about you, about your book and the Pensy Trust itself? Yeah, so you can, first you can buy the book on Amazon and it's called Type Awesome. And that's a slight play on words with Type 1 and the fact that I think everybody with Type 1 is awesome. I'm sure if you just put Joe Fox Type Awesome, it will come up. Uh, it has got a little website, so typeawesome.co.uk. Um, I'll just point out, uh, the book is available on all Amazon in every country. So if you go to Amazon.com or France, Spain, Ireland, whatever, all the local Amazon sites, you'll buy it, so you'll get it quick. The link is on the typeawesome.co.uk. And then Penzi Trust is thepensitrust.org.uk and we've got a very active Facebook channel so if you go to Facebook and just search for Penzi Trust it's P-E-N-D-S-E-Y Penzi Trust uh, I'm sure you'll find that and get in touch good stuff and thank you thank you all for listening to my Yorkshire monotone drone <laughs> <laughs> thank you Joe I know a lot of people are going to benefit from this and oh, I appreciate your time you. There was a lot to digest for me while listening to Joe speak. And I'm sure for you listening to it too, particularly the stories about Joe's experience in India. I feel hearing those sort of stories and what sort of conditions people need to deal with in relation to managing their blood sugar with so many, I suppose, issues around insulin accessibility. It really puts it into perspective how easy I have it and how easy you may have it. Of course, living with type 1 diabetes isn't easy, but when you hear stories like that, it really stood out to me how lucky I am to have the sort of access to healthcare that I do. So I'm massively grateful for that and massively grateful to Joe for coming on speaking with me, giving her insight, giving her experience and advice to any other parent or diabetic out there who may be struggling at the moment. So if you want to learn more about Joe, you can go to the websites, which I've linked in the description of the podcast for the Pens You Trust itself, her book and blog. And as always, if you are getting value from this podcast, which I really, I really hope you are, I'm sure you do, if you're still listening, please rate, please comment and share. The more people that we get listening to this podcast, potentially the more people that we can benefit. So get it out there. And as always, have a good week. Have a good day. Look after those blood sugars and I'll chat to you soon.